Ed, welcome to the podcast. Now, before we start, I should give the standard disclaimer that what is said on this podcast does not represent the views of any official government agency, whether that be the USA or elsewhere. And the opinions expressed are those of the speakers. So let's start from the beginning. How did you uh, get interested in this area? And how can you tell us about um, yourself and your interest in the British Army during the time of Napoleon? What a nice question. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why as a young man, before I even started grad school, I was I became interested in the Napoleonic period from the British perspective. I don't know whether it was that young man looking at all those the men of Waterloo stories, things like that, which were compelling. Uh, and for a young man, they brought me into a different world. A friend of mine, Mike, he and I both started at the same time, and he went the figure painting route. And he has painted, I don't know, 20,000 Napoleonic. We started, we figured out 43 years ago, and he's painting Waterloo at a 1 to 20 scale. And he's almost done. It's only taken 43 years. Uh, but he was he's brilliant at what he does. But I took a left turn. I I wanted, I couldn't get enough, I couldn't get enough books to read. I just couldn't. And started grad school, was fortunate to, my first paper I ever delivered was at the first Wellington Congress, and David Chandler was my chair. Now, that's a bit daunting when you think about it, but he turned out to be nothing but a kind gentleman taking me under his wing. Uh, we, we corresponded a lot. Every time his new book would come out, he'd send me an inscribed copy. We'd meet. So to be able to be under the tutelage of somebody like that really opens up works, ideas. So after having some training myself, I noticed I was always interested in the men, of, men in battle, too. But these things became like a crossroad. Napoleon, the Napoleonic conflict, and men in battle. And this, this inherent paradox is what drew me in. Paradox that if these guys were, as Wellington described them, the scum of the earth, thugs, criminals, rapists, murderers, how in the world were they so steady in battle? Because there's, there's the paradox. Because criminals are selfish. They worry about themselves and themselves only. There's no altruism. There's no belonging to a group except in immediate circumstances only for limited time. So all the negative things said about the British soldier, they, all this drew me in. Because it just didn't seem to stand up to a cursory analysis, just even on the surface when I was young. Uh, and it seemed like a lot of work was going to be required. And as I began to explore this topic and become aware of combat dynamics and the norms it created, you realize that group survival, people join this group, right? You, you adhere to a group when you're thrown into it because you want to survive. You don't know the battlefield. You don't know how to campaign. You don't know all those tricks. So you put yourself into this power of the small group and the small group sets norms. They set values and those values you better adhere to them because there's always one supreme punishment, and that's being ostracized. And when you look at the British soldier, who the vast majority enlisted in life for life, this was their family. This was it. So I began to look into that in great detail, trying to figure out, was Wellington right? Was he wrong? What caused him to say these things? Uh, and how did it stand up to what we have really looked at since the Stouffer study uh, in World War II, about all the combat veterans coming off the battlefield when they get given that social psychological survey to fill out. So we have 
actual data from a couple hundred thousand soldiers, that's a pretty good place to start. And how did Wellington's assessment of these men and their success, their, their, their unrivaled success in combat, how is it possible? So long answer, but that conundrum kept pulling me in. Well, let's start with that conundrum. Now, Wellington famously described his army as, quote, the scum of the earth suggesting they were motivated by lust, murder, booze, etc., etc. Where did this idea come from, and was there any truth in it? We'll answer the second question briefly, and I'll get back to it. Uh, very little truth to it. This is an outcome of social caste delineations that Wellington was very much a part of. He said one time about he'd rather have a gentleman than a competent officer. You know, that, that attitude, that social strata, and... He always aspired up. He was he was pretty ambitious. He was very select with the people he hung with, that kind of thing. So you you frame Wellington and the level of nobility, etc. And then you look at how he disdained these men and why he did so. So were there were there a lot of murders? Well, that's what Zach's wonderful new work on the reality of the military discipline system looks like and how there was more of a you couldn't punish everybody who stole, and they stole for a good reason. They were starving. So you couldn't punish them all, and Zach's work is looking at that. Okay, we'll, we'll tolerate certain things, even though it says he shouldn't, because there's a functionality there. There's an awareness of the officers of why the men are behaving like that. And there are some limitations, obviously, when you're looking at crimes, because the army moves on. So how do you, how do you prosecute a local crime? when you're not even there anymore and the witnesses are gone or they don't want to uh, participate in the, the hearing. But it, there's so few. There's just so few. I'm not saying rapes didn't happen. Nobody's naive. Because if you look at the an average population, 2% of everybody's population right now are what they call, what they used to call sociopaths. Now it's antisocial personality disorder. So that's two out of 100. So they are beyond the norms of the group. And they will do anything for their own, well, immediate needs with no compunction and no adherence to, to those group norms. But those guys get ostracized. And I think most of them end up probably, they just dance into the hills. They're, they're gone because there's no reason for them to be there. Uh, so you have Wellington's, I just never found any proof of it, even after the siege. When you get descriptions of officers who are saying some of the same things, and you dig into their own accounts, what they're almost at all times referring to as drunkenness, even though they throw terms that you would think egregious crimes against the people, and you dig into it, and that's because the men got drunk. Well, think about the contradiction in the system that if the, the fortress pulls out for more than one assault, then when you take that fortress, the rules were in Wellington allowed them I'm going to give them even a bad half. I'm going to give them three days to to do kind of punish the the town, put and they can go in and take all the food they want. They can loot. They can, and what do they go for every time? Booze because they're looking for an escape from their their standard lives, things they don't have. So do they drink? You bet. When they can get it, most of the time they can't get it. Uh, do they steal? Oh yeah, these guys are professional with that, but. I often wondered why, and that's why I did that the nutritional analysis. I had to know. If you take the body mass index and height, you can figure out uh, caloric needs. And you start seeing that the men need 
25, 28, 3,000 calories a day without exertion, without heavy exertion. So what were they getting? Well, the British actual allotment, food allotment, the rations came out to be about 2,300 calories a day when they got it, which we know they didn't often get. So it's one thing, and I understand why, that they don't want to do the French thing and alienate, alienate the Spanish population, but men will not starve for strategic purposes. They just won't. So rutabaga field, potato field, they're going in there like, like nobody's business. They come across the house, pour water on the floor, see where it's seat, try to find where the, the owner has hit his booze or his money. Will they do that? Yes. But the, the interesting thing that arises out of that is the norms of the group guide their conduct. Yes, you can steal. You better bring it back to the group and share both food and silver, but you better keep your hands off the population. I mean, that's the norm of the group stated many times in the soldier accounts, not tolerated to beat the population, to abuse them. Just take your stuff. So you can kind of see if they're not paid, pays months in arrears, so they can't even buy food. They're not supplied food. The moral obligations seem to uh, the British Army, for various reasons, I understand they couldn't get specie, they couldn't get they have enough money to buy food, but those seem to be glossed over. Current thing in the U.S. Army is officers eat last to make sure the men eat. And that was not the norms of the British Army because the, and why few of them were actually nobility. Most of them came from, most of the officers came from at least a moneyed class. And not all of them, but the, the, probably the, the majority of them had a decent officer's mess which was totally independent from what the men were getting. So they're a problem for Wellington because he wants that interaction with the populace to always be positive. He doesn't want, I mean, it makes sense why he doesn't want them to do this mostly theft and drunkenness thing. It's so human. And I think it's a bit naive to, uh, to think that these men wouldn't commit some other crimes, but I didn't find evidence to it. Most of those first person accounts, they're, they're fairly uh, open about the kind of crimes that took place and what happened. And they would have written about like mass rapes or murdering because it's just, they would have as a reflection, but they don't. Is it because they're, it's so unsavory? Well, maybe. But I think, again, we have a conundrum of what he said. And he said it too many times. I think he said it a little bit in ego, too, because if the men are not the answer to why you were tactically proficient, then it must be him. I think there's ego involved there. But these men don't lose, and they stay together as a group, because that that group that you join to stay alive, and, it's, and the norms of the group are survival. They're not norms based on the values of a 19th century nobleman or something. People just don't understand that. I want that man to stand next to me in combat. He can't be a malingerer. He can't leave because he endangers us all. He can't find a loaf of bread and eat it all himself because that's selfish. He has to share it amongst. And so why do why do these guys fight? It's because, which we'll get into, but it's it's because of the the, the connections they make with their their peers and the, and the values of those groups guide their conduct. So they're actually far more organized. I think they're far more ethical than people have given them credit for. Uh, I think you could survive a marauding British army coming through town. I think your wives and daughters would probably be okay, most of them. But would your, 
if you hid wine or you had food, would that go? Probably. You had chickens, those are probably gone. A lot of things that could have been taken care of had they fully supplied. And when you do, the British Army had fully been able to supply the men. Uh, I just, uh, you see that in certain days when they have to march, days in a row that they have to march long miles and then go into battle, they can be five, eight, ten thousand calories short of what they needed in those days. It's about, what, 3,600 calories per pound? And so in a day, they could lose three pounds just out of exertion. And it's not like tomorrow they're going to go to the restaurant. Tomorrow's just like today. And so did they do the, some of the crimes that he got angry? Sure. But what were their alternatives? So long answer, but was he right about them being scum of the earth? You know, for him, weavers, tailors, shoemakers, tinsmiths, manual laborers, the number one uh, occupation listed in my 75 man sample, 40% listed manual labor, which included farm labor. There's a social chasm between a farm laborer and Wellington that I am not able to breach. Even now, when I've had some interesting experiences over at uh, in London, as I go over there with the, the charity and the British Commission, his house, Wellington's house, absolutely house seems, it gives me the vibes of someone upwardly mobile, healthy, no mention, no mention of his men, you know, no, no, no things in the house that would have reminded him of the actual men in the campaigns and their sacrifice, none of that. And I always wander around there at a, at a bit of a loss of how this, this place seems so lacking in connections to the, to the men that essentially laid the groundwork for him to become the Duke of Wellington. So let's talk about some of those men. And they enlisted as volunteers. Now, why did they enlist in the British Army? What made them join the British Army and end up fighting in the peninsula? Economics. I really believe it's it's economically driven. Some of them, I'm sure there's some adventuring going on. If I'm an 18-year-old kid and my life looks like I'm, my parents can't get me into a guild and start learning a trade, they can't get me in. And I'm going to be a farm laborer all my life. You know how young boys glorify and dream. Yeah, so some of those young kids, sure, because it's an escape. It's an escape from that kind of labor. But the vast majority where we ran, and we didn't know this. So we ran enlistment dates. We ran progressions, comparing enlistment dates to like bread price. And you think, well, the standard bread price is in London because they're there every month through the whole war. And we ran it. And with a 99% uh, certitude, we can account that every time bread prices went up a penny, we could account for enlistment. How interesting that just bread prices is an indicator. And then to back it up, we we ran real wages and import as a economic indicator across the board and then correlated enlistments to it. Absolutely. So that gave me, I think, a fairly firm basis to uh, to combine and look at their their enlistment occupations and the times they enlisted with economic driving forces. And there's just no alternative for these men. There's no schooling available. There's even the, the important workhouse doesn't come around to 20. Uh, they fall back on the county, the counties to take care of their needs. Well, they don't have the money and begging. I just, it, it's economics. And I you never, you never hear the guys talking about for God and country 
there's none of that things that we like America too. Because if you look at many of the folks that are listed in the American Revolution, it was economics too, right? I have a friend, Josh Howard, who looks at that and he goes, it's the same thing. It's not for these grand visions of freedom or empire or whatever. It's, they're, they're forced to do it. And if you look at, John Lynn has a wonderful model. Have you ever seen it? He, he talks about three kinds of soldier motivation and it's important to delineate between the three. One is, uh, why, why do they come in? And that's what you're asking. Why do they enlist? And then there's the motivation of what keeps them in, what they have options, like with the U.S. Army, what keeps them in. And then they have combat motivation, which is what motivates them with the, when the bullets are flying. And those are three different animals entirely. So American soldier has the option to, he's going to get a chance at education. He's going to get a chance maybe at a pension. Uh, he's going to get a skill set. Uh, and he's going to get the respect of his nation. And there's a lot of positives if they why they stay in. But they're also, you talk to, and I have for 15 years, talked to these officers, and they came in for various reasons. They wanted the educational bump. They wanted the uh, opportunities. One wanted to be a dentist in the Army because his, his father, a lot of things. But Chris Soldier doesn't have any of those options. He's got pretty much nothing. And I think the idea of getting three meals a day, even though they didn't, <laughs> and of course, they're they're really gathered by some pretty pretty skilled recruiting office who pump some uh, pretty outrageous things. Oh, you'll be an officer in three years, and, and you'll be able to rise, and you'll see the country and the beautiful women, and, and young boys want to hear that. And so these guys dressed in their over-the-top uniforms with additional, you know, non-compliant regalia on them to make them look that much more regal. That's pretty compelling for a young boy working on a farm, but it still comes down to economics. So sorry to disappoint the people who think that there's all these other reasons, but it's uh, it's pretty stark. Well, let, let's take the second of John Lynn's ideas. What what keeps them in the army, uh, and why don't they desert? So once once you get to Spain, you've been you've had your journey over to you arrive in Portugal, and you're in one of Wellington's formations. What keeps you in the line? First, most likely you don't speak Spanish. Okay, so now you're far from home. You would be in the same economic situation, except now you don't take you don't speak the native tongue. That to me would be a limiter of what I was able to do. Now, if I pick up a Spanish wife and maybe she would teach me the language and her family had a farm or something, maybe so. I seem to find that most desertions, if you look at the accounts, these guys had somehow failed in their small group duties. Like I said, malingerer doesn't stay in line. Disappears every time we get, we have to get into a combat formation. Then he shows up after the battle. Known for hoarding food. Uh, known for uh, misbehavior with civilians. Known for uh, misbehavior with officers. And there's more than just military punishment. There's small group punishment. So those are the ones that I find that disappear. Because that allegiance to the small group, unintentionally nurtured by the Brits. Nothing makes... More tied to another human being than shared hardship, and especially with them, that's why the norms were what they were. Share your bread, share the experience. You become dependent on them; they become your brother. What did Edward Costello say? 
when he was asked about family, he said, I don't have one, save my comrade, which I thought was pretty telling for him to describe it so succinctly. So you've, you're in country. You're here because you have to be. And, you know, the punishment for desertion when it was actually inflicted, which Zach shows that it wasn't always inflicted as often as possible, is service worse than the lash for desertion? Is service worked and worse than being, so you're kind of among your brothers in this pretty difficult environment, you're not being fed, et cetera, or do you want to go take a chance, almost like a lark? You still don't have any skills, you're in this country. So I think they, well, the vast majority of them stayed because the options were, were so low and that the unity of the group, you know, you, you'll stand with your brothers, you will. And so I think that, again, some of these answers seem succinct, but this is the, the behavior of human psychology and the behavior of soldiers and men of is way more complex than I'm describing it right now because we're trying to be succinct to give people insight. But there's always outliers. There's always multiple threads that take you here and there. So I don't mean to be simplistic about it, but if, uh, I just don't see their alternative. Do you? Do you see anything they could have done? Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it, whether coercion keeps you going there. I was wondering whether the, the firm leadership of your officers might motivate you to remain on service, because this is something I found from my First World War uh, examination, that the sort of paternalistic attitude of officers is quite significant. But from what I read in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, many of them are not paternalistic in the early 19th century. The officers that you're describing in World War I were, were professionals, and I think they understood leadership. Uh, the current one of my former students who's a uh, brigade commander, is, he's really a leader. And he, we talk about leadership and he said, leadership is about several things. It's about mission. It's about people and making them better so that they can complete the missions. And when you leave, they are better soldiers. They better understand their job. They are more capable. Et so he said, taking care of your people is it. And I hadn't heard it ever written like, you know, said like that. So leadership at this time, you have to think who the leaders were, what is their skill set? There's no training. You know, they, there's no officer, there's no command general staff college, there are no senior NCO leadership schools. These, they're picking up leadership on the fly. And so some of the men do really follow their leaders because if a leader will keep you alive, not keep you out of combat necessarily, but he knows the right formations at the right time. He knows when to rest you. And he looks after you like that. They will follow that guy. But again, that's based on because he keeps them alive. And again, it comes back to the small group norms say, we'll follow him because he has a benefit. To us. But those guys seem to be pretty far uh, between because they have somehow had that innate ability to read it. They learned it, obviously, because it doesn't come out of the womb with their ability to read terrain and make quick battlefield decisions. But most of the guys seem, they're very distant in class and money from their men. And we read the officer accounts. And the officer accounts, you know, I got up, we had, we rode until 10, PM, 10 a.m. And then I checked on the men for like a half hour. And then we went to lunch. And then... Maybe or maybe not. They did something in the afternoon. And all their accounts are never about training. Now, I, I, I know the NCOs did drill with the guys all the time. But were the officers there? Hmm. Uh, they talk about the cultural aspects of Spain, 
the food, the beautiful women, but they don't talk about leadership concepts. Again, another student, student of my really great guy, John Spencer, he's been really a key right now in what's going on, some of the stuff in Ukraine. He wrote a book called Connected Soldiers that I got to edit for him. And the whole book is about leadership. The whole thing, nobody said, John, write a book on leadership. He wanted to write a book on his experiences as a leader in Iraq, Afghanistan. And it was like, holy moly, a young person in the civilian world should read this book because it it tells you about the norms and requirements of leaders. It's how do you take care of the men? How do you weed out difficulties? How do you say, and here's the trick, your norms and align them with the small group norm so that you have a an agreement about behavior and what needs to be done. That's not that easy even today, partly because of communication. Interesting discovery on his part was that in the time of the British soldier, obviously, after a long march, after combat, they rallied to each other. And it was it was pretty cathartic to share experiences, share uh, trauma amongst your peers where you won't be judged. It's, it's a healing, right? That's important. Well, now the guys come off the line and they go right to the computer thing and they talk to their, their family. They're not going to tell their family most of these stories because they don't want to worry their family. So they internalize all that. And that's really, in his view, really something that disrupts small group, the value of the small group, what small group can do for you as a, an individual because now you've got this important but extraneous group 3,000 miles away that you can't really tell the truth to. And then you go back in and have another mission. Who do you share that with? So I don't see the officers coming down, guiding the men, particularly training the men. It was just a different time. And what officers were expected to do was seem like know some of the formations, lead from the front, follow orders, whatever they're told to do. And you obviously have some exceptions in there that I don't need to go into all the, you know, the, the, the good leaders that arose, but it's really hard to identify those mid-leaders who, I mean, the soldiers don't even talk about them. The most talked about soldier I had, the leader was a guy who realized his men were emaciated. So he pulled some strings and had, I think you read it, the commissariat provide them oatmeal. And in no time at all, they not only put meat on their bones, so to speak, they were getting men out of hospital and the men going in because I don't think most folk realize between 25 and 32 percent of the armies in hospital at all time and uh, brought that up with my soldiers. And they go, if we would have had a fifth of that, they would have been under charge for neglect of their men. And yet it's just that's the norm of the British Army that at least a quarter to a third of the men are in hospital. The men don't want to be there because they have to pay for it and they can get separated from their unit. But that's that's just how bad it was. So. I don't see leaders. I wish they were. You don't get a lot of Pictons. You don't get Daddy Hills. You get some, but the idea of looking after your soldier first, because what are they? They're just laborers. I think they were looked on as more commodities. And I think British leadership does evolve. And I think by the time you talked about World War One, they understood you get a unit to do what they need to do in the trenches. There better be some connection. You better believe that officer cares about you. And I just don't... I don't see that. I think that's fascinating. And the other point you make, which is really interesting about from what John was saying about, you know, people, soldiers coming out of action and going onto Facebook. And in the First World War, you got lots of letters going back and forth. In the peninsula in the early 19th century, you have no mail 
And even if you did, very few of your soldiers were literate. So you, ha- you are literally cut off from your community where you have very less mail, so to speak. We don't know exactly, but the one study done in this time in civilian in, in France was about 50% were literate. So you take a look at the British soldier and his background, you're probably going to drop 10 or 15% off that. So maybe a third of the guys, but there's, there's just no way. When they left home, I think many of them left home. I am, for no reason other than I'm interested in, because this very thing we're talking about, I've been looking at uh, the British incursions into Africa in the 19th century, uh, including the Zulu War and all that. And they have letters. The letters are going home. Is the men hope that sometime they will go home? So they're still connected to aunts and parents and sisters. I don't think the British soldier, I think he's, the whole phrase, gone for a soldier, means that was your brother, and you're probably never going to see him again. Because uh, most of these guys don't come home. And I, I think that cuts them off and makes them totally reliant on a small group for affection, for uh, affirmation of how am I judged? What's my value as a human being, as a, as a soldier? The small group tells me, probably not the leaders, probably not my home, but well, I would love to come across the trove of letters from British soldiers in the Peninsula War home. They would, they don't exist, but what a, what a treasure they would be. And, and finally, I'm taking John Lynn's three types of motivation. What motivates the British soldier in combat in the Peninsula? That's my fave right there. That's the question, Tom. Uh, it's, it's complex, and I'm trying to organize my thoughts here so I don't miss anything. It's an extenuation of the small group, but I don't, I, I'm generalizing here, and I hate when I do that. When I investigated this, and the good thing about teaching a CGSC, I had so many wonderful students and leaders who would come in and talk to me endlessly. And I had uh, Major Mike Taylor, who was the 2012 Army MacArthur, the leadership award winner. He was the guy. And we talked about, and you know what he wrote? I got to read this to you. He said, soldier reactions are different every time. I'd like to honestly say that I can predict how I or anyone else will act in combat, but I can't. It's different in different circumstances. And he described different things. Like on one time, a guy with on the saw, you know, the squad automatic weapon, races out, grabs a combat under fire, pulls him back. It's just an astoundingly brave thing to do. And three hours later, they couldn't get that same saw gunner out from behind a rock. So what had changed? What had, so that's, that's the things I want to avoid is just this overview statement that one thing X causes Y and it's, it's all the same. It's not, but you do have a process. And I found this to be the most fascinating. And my thing recently is neurophysiology and fear because I wanted to know maybe because I'm, I just love science, and I want to find out find out if it was there. And one of my students was uh, President Obama's doc, so I got the White House docs kind of helped me through this because it's extraordinary, com- extraordinarily complex. But it's a small group. If you ask, if you never read the Stouffer study again, where the number one thing, and I'm jumping around here, I'm trying to get this. When it comes to combat motivation. That Stouffer study, the number one thing when asked. What kept them going in a fight? The number one response was not letting the other man down. And that's pretty definitive statistical, social, psychological support for this. And it was interesting when I would talk to students, I would throw them bones like, well, 
You're fighting because we're fighting the war. You're in combat. You're thinking we're, we must fight terrorism. We must fight the evil. And they would look at me, really, sir? That's not what we're doing. They, they would laugh and I go, well, tell me what you're doing. And they would always make this gesture. They make the thumbs pointing to the, their comrade to their left and the right. This is why we fight, sir. When the bullets start flying, and it wasn't like one of them said it. It was 15 years of students saying it without exception. And that was pretty convincing to me that the primary group becomes your family. John Spencer stuff. I've used his uh, interviews in other my own, my one uh, article on the vicissitudes of violence, the uncertainties of violence, right? I used many of his and other students, their primary source accounts of what they went through. And as officers, you have your slightly different place, but he was also an enlisted guy. Outside of talking about the joy of hearing the 50 cal go off, because that always means that you have the Army technological support for you. Uh, he always talked about the joy of hearing that. But other than that, it was knowing that the connections between, the, as you were talking about, between at least the NCOs and the men and the men and each other, we're going to have them do what he needed them to do because it was in their best interest. And so you get in John Lynn's model, that combat motivation, it's not for God, it's not for King, and it's not for country. When the bullets fly, it's to keep each other alive. And so the irony of that, you join a small group because you think they know much more than you do about survival and you kind of become an adherent to their, to their principles. And yet the, the ties become so strong that you will soon be willing to sacrifice yourself for that group, the very group you joined to keep you alive. And there's something, this, this is what I uncovered with the neurophysiology and the British methodology. And it, of course they didn't know this, but it turns out the perception drives your neurophysiology. It drives your, your reaction to fear. It's not the reality, it's your perception of what the event is and the efficacy of what you can do. The body puts out epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, cortisol initially having uh, some physiological benefits, right? But cortisol is also the hormone of depression. That's the depressive hormone, right? So if you perceive that your actions are hopeless and the group is hopeless, your cortisol levels will go up and they will stay there. And they will drive you to that when you read stories about soldiers uh, just immobile on the ground, incapable in of taking action, hands over their heads, that's that's cortisol just pumping through your system. And uh, not only does it have immediate, it has long-term effects, skews perceptions, uh, impacts your cognitive performance. And I have like 15 other things. It damages the hippocampus. It's, it changes your memory. And it affects how you learn uh, and it becomes part of essentially the PTSD process because part of that cycle. So cortisol, cortisol is, is not good, all right, in, in, in a large amount. It's good initially, but so again, your perception that nothing is going to work, but you're in a group. And I have a couple of accounts when they're, they're going to do the British methodology is not three rounds a minute, contrary to Sharp and that wonderful TV series, right? In the book, Cornwell's Books, it's close range volley because it's got to be within 40 yards or so if you want the, the brown best to be effective. And then they go to bayonet. Now, you think of that from a brain chemistry perspective. You have proactive movement. And again, I said I had a couple of accounts. 
where guys were a little trepidatious about moving forward, doing this, because you're moving closer to a unit that's firing at you. You can't fire. You know the discipline. And that's really been drummed into you because if one guy fires, all the guys are going to fire. And then they're going to stop and want to reload. And your whole advance is done. So the guys are looking up and down the line, looking left and right. And they're hoping people are going to back off and, you know, start falling back. But they don't. And by looking at the images of the, these men, because they know this methodology works, it steals that individual to, to believing or pro that his actions, that this part of this group will have meaning. And then they're going to get close enough. They're going to go exchange. They're going to issue that close range volley and they're going to bayonet, right? And I don't know too many things more. I'm trying to think of a good word where you get such a serve. And when everybody's yelling and you're all moving ahead with the level bayonet, well, that belief, and again, I'm simplifying all these neurophysiological hormones, where they go, how long it takes, I'm simplifying it. But you're going to get epinephrine and norepinephrine, which we call adrenaline inversions of adrenaline. That's going to restrict your bowel movement needs. It's going to uh, rush blood to the, to the key parts, your brain, that hippocampus where you're, you know, things slow down for you. You've had those moments in, in danger, maybe even in athletic competitions where things slow down and the amygdala causes that. Well, all that's related to this flow of brain chemistry. And it's so proactive, close range. And you see what a 800 guys can do to you at 40 yards. It's not pretty, but they have to have the discipline to get there. And then they go to bayonet. Well, that's why bayonet casualties are so few because the other side's not waiting around to see the effects. And that brain chemistry, that allegiance to the small group, that tactical nuance that was actually, you could not have created a better neurophysiological response to fear than what the British came up with. Uh, I, I just found that fascinating. So it's the group, it's the bonus of the epinephrine and norepinephrine. And it's that functional methodology, but you have to believe, at least in your NCOs, and you got to believe in each other. And that's what's going to keep you on this, you know, doing what you need to do on the battlefield. So if the British are doing this, why aren't the French and the Russians and the Prussians doing this? What makes the British group or use of the small group so effective? The, the French are trying to do it. I think because the whole thing with the French, some are going to be in columns and the columns get close because they look like big hammers. And the columns with all the pod to charge and all that, they're, they're pretty damn intimidating. And at some point, they're supposed to deploy in the line so they can have firepower and, you know, mass. But they got, I think, that, but they got used to not having to deploy. They were successful against other nations just with hammers. And deploying as you near the enemy takes a lot more practice. And let's admit, Napoleon's army of 1805, stunning. His army as it moves through Spain. It has replacement of individual soldiers, replacement of officers, because if you want promotion in Napoleon's army, you're going to have to be up front and getting attention. So that attrition changes, I think, their tactical capabilities. And what, what he has at Waterloo is nothing like he had in 1805. So I think they have their own method. The French use artillery. They use intimidation. They use skirmish screens. Uh, they have cavalry that actually answers recall. They're using the, the whole combined arms, but I think they get a little a little sloppy because it's so difficult to do uh, a mixed order with 
only partially trained troops. Other nations, uh, I, I can't necessarily account for, except you have, and it, it's just, to me, it's too complex to, to put it on anything to generalize about why the Russians do what they do. Uh, so she since I haven't spent 30 years studying them, it's ironic just in preparation for this. I was digging through some of my books and I came across a paper I wrote, Ordeal by Fire. It's 30 years old and it talks about some of these very things, but I didn't have the evidence to back it up at that point. And then I realized 30 years ago, I was still trying to sort through these things. And it's taken me 30 years to read every soldier account, every officer account to go through. So I, I hate to speak recklessly about the, the Russians and the Austrians. Uh, and I'm sure there must be some succinct answer, but I can't give it to you. Uh, the other armies had to face starvation. They had primary group cohesion too. You have to. The French threw in a little bit of that the looting and the pillaging as, as a bonus. And, you know, um, John Lynn's student, Mike Hughes, did some really good work looking at camp songs, bulletins. What were the motivations of the French army? Come see the women of Europe was, was offered to them as a bonus. And so they knew what they were allowed to do. So they had that same unity. I don't know. Maybe it's the – there could be a difference, too. If you're part of the 82nd Airborne, at any point in your career, you're 82nd Airborne, right? That's the thing. You're part of, uh, back in the day, you're part of the first foot guard. That's the thing. My num my regiment has more than a number. On it. it has a history, and it was on their flags, but I'm of the 11th foot. It does not quite have the same regimental history, regimental identity. Does that play in? Could be. Could be. Uh, because the small group wants to wants to uh, adhere to any norms that makes it feel superior. That's why sometimes the 82nd doesn't get along with 100. They're always harping at each other. It's because both think they're a little superior and they don't want to hear the 82nd is the only real airborne, 101st is aerosol, etc. So maybe that plays a small role. I know the men were very proud uh, of their units. I don't know. It's a, it's a really good question. I'm going to go try to explore that at some point. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it is fascinating. And I, so I was just maybe referring back to the primary groups that, that, that the British had. What was the level of attrition in those groups and how did attrition shape the, um, the way that those groups functioned? Well, as we know, the, the sickness rates of the British Army were pretty horrendous. And the men that were lost in battle pale in comparison to the men were lost to the various diseases just pales. It does in every war, but the numbers of the British Army, since they kept them, are pretty star. I think it's the same in all small groups. Rob Rush wrote Helen Hurkin Forrest. And in Hurkin Forrest, he said the level of attrition for this particular American unit was so high that he claimed that primary group cohesion was impossible. So he was trying to, he came up with some substitution norms that why they were still successful. And he found out something remarkable. You can still take ground without having primary group cohesion. If you're willing to feed men into a, just to the grind, because the new guys are always more aggressive than they should be. And they're always willing to take risks that they shouldn't. So if you want to sacrifice them on mass, and that's what he found the advances in Hurricane Forest were beyond. And some of it was, I, I, I had to agree to it, but you also found out that officers were trying to set norms and you'd still had some 
survivors like NCOs and, and the corporals. So there's always going to be some degree of primary group cohesion, even if it's only two to three guys, which become four, becomes 10. Uh, it's slow, but I think it's an accelerated process when you need that to survive. But the, the British Army obviously had enough individuals in these units for continuity because they just kept winning on the battlefield. And if they had a 50-50 record, I would probably guess that attrition would have been the secret because it, it unwound those those bonds of the primary group. But they kept winning. So there's only one reason you can do that. And did you find that, I suppose, primary group cohesion varied between particular units? And did ethnicity of British Army soldiers in terms of Irish, Scottish, Welsh, did that make a difference to how units functioned? I don't know how to quantify. You know, it's hard to gather. I'm a data guy because I'm, I'm, I'm weary of making assertions not based on evidence. I mean, conjecture is one thing we all conjecture, but I'm very leery of, of There was no doubt that Irish units have an Irish identity. Until they get replacements who aren't Irish, and then they lose some of that Irish identity. Did that help them? Probably, because we have, again, we have a, almost like a communal history together. We have the same backgrounds, the same things that bonds us tighter together. Uh, same with the Scots. The pride just is a additional benefit. I mean, you could take me right now and put me in any Scottish regiment, and I would be quite proud to be part of it. And in no time at all, I think I would be I would be mouthing and sporting the norms of that group just because they'd be so honorable or, or be part with an Irish ancestry or a Welsh ancestry. I have the paperwork to prove one of my ancestors was part of the light company, the first foot guards at Waterloo. So to be part of something like that, uh, I got to know a group and they made me an honorary officer of the 88th foot. That's right. You know, that the kind of a nefarious bunch. But I was very proud. And I, I have that displayed in the most prominent place in my house because they custom made one of the Shakos for me. It's just so I think anything that adds to the identity, uh, especially given the amount of Irish in the Scots, but they were looked down on by the English due to language, due to stereotypes. Uh, does that bond you together when you, it only, only if there's enough, if there's 25 in a unit of 500, probably not enough because it's got to be but at least your company. You know, you have to get it down to that microcosm. And again, we're speaking in generalities because as I mentioned, you know, you just don't know how a guy's going to behave on any given day. But we're so just have the, the listener understand that we're making generalities. But overall, why why this individual that I mentioned, he's just he was a crackerjack student too. Mike Taylor was just one of those guys that makes you proud of why you could be in the same room teaching somebody like that. He just wanted to take care. He wanted to know what your triggers were and what he could do to make you a better soldier. Why was that guy behind the rock? Did he, had he reached, had he poured out, like uh, Lord Moran said, how much courage you have is a finite amount in your wealth. He wanted to learn that amongst all his men. And I've heard that from more than one leader. They, they really cared about understanding the driving forces. So know that the, for, for the reader, the listener, that the things we're talking about work best in a microcosm, not cross. But I also found out something, and this is just kind of off the track, but I found out every 
all the officers I talked to, they all had a trigger. And the, the one of them, he started telling me the same story. And he was, he had a trigger friend. And I didn't, you know, you hear it enough. And I go, it was John. I go, John, do you realize when you say it's time to get some, you always say, and then I thought, oh, no, you didn't, which is kind of innocuous, right? Doesn't sound Romanesque or manly or anything. But in his mind, that was his physiological trigger. That was his go-to gun. And he had that set. And he, and he thought about it. He goes, it is. It is. I say it every time. We got to go get some. So he had subconsciously trained himself to do so. And I had just for another one. Uh, another. He was a lieutenant colonel. And I asked him. I started asking people, do you have triggers? And they all, what do you mean? And, and Ed goes, and he goes, son of a bitch. He goes, that was my trigger. He said, every time things went bad, I go, oh, son. He said, I grit my teeth. And then it was the go time. So he's unconsciously dealing with his own neurophysiology, which I found quite interesting. And now this is interesting about management. John and I talked about this too. There is a anti-stress hormone in your body. It's called oxytocin. And oxytocin is released when you give or receive aid from someone. This just is, look, look it up. Now, it's also bizarre that you can buy this on Amazon. You can't, which is really weird because what people want is the harmony, the release. But there haven't been studies, there haven't been medical studies looking at body weight, mass, you know, body mass index, how much you should get, how often. So there never been the studies, but you can get little spritzer things of this oxytocin. But you, you find that if you... Just put a hand on someone, on their shoulder. You're both getting a release of oxytocin, which is going to calm you down. It's going to, it's going to help release some other things. And I, I found that, we talked about that as a leadership thing, that should be taught. You should be able to go through your unit and know when and to whom might need just that pat on the back. A, a simple thing like that, right? <clears throat> need a word, but make sure you touch them. I know it's a bit off the track too, but I... I coached an adult baseball team till recently, and I played on it too. But you'd think we, we're very competitive, and we're over forty. We're over forty-eight, and you you would think every game was a World Series. And these guys would get wound up, and they would get they get so tight sometimes they couldn't function. They were so hard on themselves. So I'd go up when I I go to the mound when the pitcher was struggling. First thing I did put my hand on his shoulder. Okay. And you could see, you could see in their visage a change because they think they're going to get yanked because they fail. So I put my hand on their shoulder and then this is me because I'm crazy. I had a whole bunch of Rodney Dangerfield, you probably know who Rodney Dangerfield is, but he's an American comedian who had like a continual stream of jokes. And they were always funny. Like I wanted, I told my wife I wanted to have sex in the car and she said, sure. She asked me if I drop, you know, things like that. And so you hand on the shoulder. Tell them a little quick joke because I'm in center field or shortstop. I can see their their motion. Give them a little mechanical adjustment and run back. And you could see them just, they would just go, ha. Ah. And so leadership in combat should probably be the same. And that's what, they, you know, that's what uh, Mike Taylor was trying to do. How can you find the triggers of all your men? How can you know when they have a breaking point? Then you're really dealing with leadership. You know what I mean? You're really, because you're taking care of a no Know your men. You're not coddling them because that one guy went out and I think he got a silver star for rescuing his comrade. But why was he different a few hours later? That's the conundrum of human conduct under fire.
It's not consistent. You're not consistent day to day. And imagine being a leader today or even a leader in the Napoleonic times where you have no training to do any of it. And yet you have to send your men into a siege assault. It's fascinating. I mean, you're talking, do you think there's sort of a universal soldier? And do you think there's sort of universal lessons we can learn from your work and maybe other people look at other periods and sort of this concept that what you can draw from the Napoleonic period is applicable for to, to, to today, today's soldier? Well, you know how to ask some insightful questions. These are, these are humdingers. You know, they are. These are like, you know, defend your, your uh, oral exam day. Here's a, here's a good one. Let me bounce this bad boy into your... If I said that there was a universal soldier, John Lynn would materialize in this room and stab me. Because I agree with him partially, mostly. Because the norms of a society are imprinted to some degree on the individual's who joined the army, and then the norms of that particular group and that time period under certain circumstances, like the norms of accepting thievery and sharing food, if they had been in part of today's American army, those would be crime because we take care of you. You're getting all the food you need. You're getting all the hydration you need. So John is absolutely right. There is no universal soldier because the norms are specific to a time they're specific to a group and a place. Now, on the other hand, human beings are human beings. There is a universal physiology. There's no difference between people say, well, they were Romans and they were used to it. No. Okay. They, they underwent exactly the same physiological processes they under, when they underwent trauma and fear. So what if we take away some of the science, then I think you can apply it across the board. And it starts to make sense when you look at a World War II soldier, a Greek hoplite. Some recent work shows that they're actually much farther apart than they most likely have been shown. And if they're farther apart, think of what that does. When your guy is within the arm's reach of you, that's, that's good. When the farther away he gets, the more difficult it is to maintain one your place in that unit because the guy next to you looks around and he thinks he can... Maybe it's time to run. He runs. Then his buddy runs. And now the, between you and the next is 10 yards. And the likelihood of more desertions comes, comes along. Uh, one of the papers I, I may be delivering at the next foreign peace conference is looking at my ancestors, part of a two-man unit, part of that light company. He's working in a group of two out in the orchard defending, I mean, that's, you, you load, your other your partner fires, you skedaddle to new cover. That's kind of hard to have a lot of cohesion there. What kept him there? How hard must it have been? Because they're taking the initial brunt of the French assault, and they don't have a lot of cover. They don't have comrade. Uh, uh, Liam, part of the, the charities, uh, he's a fireman and a former uh, household cavalry officer, I believe. He uh, He's looking at fire at Ugomal. And its effects on, because what we're talking about is cognitive things with this primary group, right? He's looking at the effects of fire on the primary group because fire is finite. You can't think your way through fire. You can't ignore the pain to stand with your comrade, right? It's not a mental thing. You don't have a choice. So I'm finding his new work fascinating. He's really digging into how they were able to hold you know, the roofs of Hugoma with without the standard 
cohesion. So do I think there are some carryovers? I do. I really think if, if you understand the physiology of fear, uh, but I've also found, sadly, Tom, that most folks just aren't interested in the sharp end stuff. They're interested in bigger ideas. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm, I'm always amazed when I, you know, do this podcast, which is Anorak City. It's very, very niche. And people aren't interested in this. And it, but it's utterly fascinating. I mean, there is a physiological, biological dimension, but there's also how that is socialized within groups and how values like masculinity, stoicism, duty, however you want to phrase it, and how cultures, how different cultures, you know, people who may be Buddhist, Muslim, whatever, Jewish, and their parent, you know, cultures and how that shapes motivation. And it's, you know, utterly fascinating. Which goes to John Lynn's point. There is no universal soldier. Yeah. But there is universal physiology. Yeah. Uh, I think, and this is just me, and I used to be on a crusade to speak as many conferences about this as I could. I think you should start, if you want to be a good military historian, I think you should start at the bottom up. I think you need to understand what men are then and men and women now are asked to do. I think you need to know their frame of mind. I think you need to know the norms that drive them. And because there are, the small group is a universal thing, but maybe not the norms of the small group or the value sets and what they want to adhere to. But if you understand what the soldiers, you can step back. That's how I used to teach on my classes. I had all kinds of regalia, which are now in my basement. I mean, I have everything, all the weapons. But it worked for me, and I didn't sort of heck didn't come in dressed as Napoleon. I had the mannequin, had all the stuff, and I'd let them go and examine it, you know, uh, dry fire the, the brown best, see the spark, see when it didn't spark, hold the, the match lock, and then talk about, you know, 50% misfire rate, and then watch them. I had more briefs done with people wearing Napoleon's coat and hat, and, you know, in the attire wearing the Roman armor, just because they wanted to wear it. And they said, you know, sir, this weighs just about as much as our current armor does. Well, how interesting. They were surprised how mobile they felt in the Roman armor. And then they were surprised how sharp the gladius really was. And the how difficult that shield is to wield when you're five feet six. And if you get that kind of bottom-up thing, then I tell them, take a step back and tell me what it's going to take for you to lead a group of soldiers firing those matchlock weapons, when you know the range is like 40 yards, you know misfire rate is 50%, it's going to take them a minute or two to load again. How are you going to lead them? Oh, we got some phenomenal discussions about people who do this for a living. And I was lucky. They were amazing. They taught me more than I ever taught them. And then you can start taking steps back and looking at like Napoleon's army from a tactical, a operational, strategic level. But you understood why he put all these awards in and soldier benefits and soldier retirement homes. And then somebody would always go, yeah, but sir, he doesn't have to pay any of that if they die. And you'd go, oh, so you're implying some of this might have been manipulative. But Napoleon was still for soldier medals, you know, the modern era that the standard soldier can get. And I mean, my ancestor had served 19 years when he served at Waterloo. And he, all he gets is that two-year service bump for the Waterloo Medal, right? He immediately drops out of the army because now he's got 21 years. Gone, done. Now, I am assuming he was illiterate because he was 21 years as a private, but he got a good conduct letter from his officer. To understand him, 
gives me so much more insight into the various levels of what Napoleon tried to do, what was what the British Army was lacking in recognition of the soldiers, you know, taking care of them, basically, even if they served, minimizing or robbing them of their pensions. Those were penny wise and pound foolish things because had benefits been better, pay had been better, they would have got a they would have got volunteers who wanted to be there, not volunteers who just had to be there because of economics. So, yeah, I think there's a lot we can take away, but I think you have to be very discerning as you were when you presented the whole thing about the background norms and ideals. I think that was, you should write that up and pretty good, Tom. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you. I'm sure it's not me. Uh, it's because um, it, it is a fascinating area. And, you know, your work, I think, is very convincing because, I mean, I, I'm also, I think it is convincing, but I'm also cognizant that unitary theories of motivation are dangerous. And I, I was a unitary theorist, I think, until I read Ben Conable's work on the Rand study. And I think, I think motivation, certainly from my perspective, is largely done by a small group. That, that is, a, without doubt, probably the major one. But again, it varies from individual to individual and also at different times. In combat, it, it's probably more. But when you're sitting in a muddy trench, it's different. And using John Lynn's model, differentiating initial sustaining and combat gives you a whole insight that those are separate things. And it pushes you away from that generalizing. And then, then you have a better grasp of, I think, the nuance of these motivations. Yeah. Completely. I look forward to seeing your work. I truly do. Well, you're very, you're very kind. Um, it's coming. I'm currently trying to quantify morale on the, for my grandfather's division, um, which is somewhat challenging, but that is a, a subject for another time. And finally, John, finally, Ed. All right. John, John, Lynn is, John Lynn is still in the room, as he always is. He is. Yes. He, I'm going to try and get him. He, he's, he's up for an interview, but sometime later this year. And you will be amazed. He was my... Other mentor, I had several mentors, Joe Gilmartin, uh, but and John Rule, John Rothney. But once I got John Lynn on board, holy moly, it was a different level of insight. He knows things to such a degree. He is such an analytical, not a templative guy. He knows the evidence. Uh, when I know this is all school stuff, but when Jeffrey Parker and his ideals and his revolution, military revolution came up, uh, you know, how more men were needed because the castles got bigger and more men were needed, et cetera. And then John Lynn immediately gets to the French archives and comes with one where I would I would have the students read Lynn uh, Parker stuff and then Lynn stuff too in a small group. And he would go, yeah, but that's all good, Parker's idea. But Lynn is shown because he's got the, the pay records that when the castles got bigger, the, the fortresses, they just spread the guys out, and he's got their pay records to prove it. That's how John Lynn works, and he'll ask you things, some of the best, most insightful questions you'll ever have, and it's, he's a dynamo in a room. He is a dynamo, and I was so lucky to have him shape how I think and write. I look forward to interviewing. But on that bombshell, I'm going to say, Ed, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>